So I'm going to start off and I'm going to interview Zion Yao. So hopefully you guys will know more about her than you've ever known before. So well, don't give me that look. You guys, you can't tell, but she's giving this really weird, like, That's nose in the air look. But, so why don't you explain that look first? Um, just, like a dash it just here. sounds very, you said, like, that you get to know me in a way that you hadn't known before. And, of course, there's the famous euphemism about the word no oh like no biblically yes oh (laughs) so you could understand why i'd make a face (laughs) i don't understand why you would think i was going biblical but okay it's just it's the way that you phrased it okay yeah well we're gonna okay yeah i'm not gonna repeat history here so zion you are from canada yes i am i'm from toronto what is that like do you Um, know drake yes i do not (laughs) know drake which is more like yes i hear this quite a bit um, how I do not know Drake at all, I'm afraid. However, I can say that I have at least one friend who's on Facebook um, that went to high school with Drake. Mm-hmm. And so I have seen a picture that oh, she's posted of them going to high school together. Mm. I'm sorry, that's about Wait, how do you like, post a picture of someone going to high school with somebody? You just, no, like, walking down the hallway? Were they No, friends? they're all like, they're posing, you know, doing a class picture. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so you are from Toronto. And I'm very proud of Toronto to the point that I think it's sort of funny that I've been so vocal about my Torontonian identity since doing school in the States to the point that maybe like a dozen friends and even former students have basically contacted me when they've been making plans to go to Toronto Mm -hmm. because like, well, you've talked so much about Toronto. What should I do when I get there? Wait, I think I've done this to you. Yes, you did that to me for your brother. Nice. Actually, he didn't even go. I was wondering why you never told me how it was, <laughs> and I was afraid that something went wrong. Yeah, so tell me about, what's your favorite food in Toronto? I don't know. Um, well, Toronto is a great foodie city because we're so, we're, we just have a very multicultural population. Um, I'm sure that at this point we probably have more, the population is perhaps at least as many immigrants, uh, new immigrants, if not more than 50 percent um and we have like a lot of different we have little italy we have koreatown we have chinatown we have little india um pretty much we have like the largest expat um i think it's tamil community and the largest expat um iranian community Mm -hmm. so it means a lot of great food but to so narrow it down is really damn hard i really like szechuan of course we have amazing Ham Chinese communities. Or maybe, um, I guess, what was your favorite childhood food that you grew up eating in your home? In my home? I don't know. That's really specific. Th- that, no. that is so... I thought I was going to help you by being No, more... see, if you just said a favorite childhood food, like a restaurant food, that would be helpful. Okay, but... favorite childhood food. So, even though I went through a period of really rejecting a lot of things about myself that were Chinese, oddly enough, I really liked chicken feet at dim sum. mm even during the period when I was like, I do not, don't like Chinese food, somehow chicken feet were the thing that um, made the cut, because they were just so tasty. <laughs> made the cut. Yeah. You have to cut the, the chicken feet from the chicken. Okay, I thought it was a pun. No. Um, but why don't you tell me about this, I don't know, growing up Chinese in Canada part of your life. I mean, it's it's interesting, so... Of course, historically, um, the Chinese also have a long history in Canada, but that's not my history. Uh, at the same time that 
the US had the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, Canada had the Chinese head tax. But my family is one of the more recent generations to come over. So even though there's this long history, that's not my history. Um, it's in, I think that my experience is probably anomalous compared to the typical Asian North American experience because I grew up in a place where it's overwhelmingly Chinese. Mm-hmm. Like our, the Richmond Hill Markham area, so this is part of the, the suburbs of Toronto, the greater Toronto area, is it sometimes feels at like at least half Chinese to East Asian. Uh, although that might not necessarily be the case. And like my high school probably was like half half Chinese and Korean, some Filipino as well. And so I've always been used in the Toronto context to of being not standing out in the same way that I do in all other places after that. And so it was really graduate school, leaving Toronto for my master's at Dalhousie and then coming to this, and also later coming to the States that suddenly I had to become aware of my Chineseness in a way that I hadn't when I was growing up. Not that obviously I had other issues that I sort of talked about, like internalizing a lot of self-hatred and so forth, but um, it's definitely a different dynamic. So when you were younger, you, because you were always around a large Asian community, you distanced yourself, but then in grad school you got closer? Not exactly, but but because, because I grew up with such a large Asian community, I never felt the sort of isolation that I feel like uh, attends a lot of other people's personal narratives of mm-hmm. being Asian in North America, being like the only Asian family um, in the town or something like that. Instead, it was just, we had a legitimate culture inside, so it never felt that I was boxed in with a particular identity. Mm-hmm. Instead, I felt like I more stood out because my family was comparatively very westernized, and so that's why in a previous episode, podcast episode, I think I may have mentioned this, like a lot of my fellow um, Asian students sometimes thought I was half white. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of other things are normal. Like, one good thing about being an Asian kid is that you often had really exciting snacks to bring, and that made you have a lot of power when your people were doing snack swapping during lunch in elementary school. Um, yeah, so it was more leaving this context where I wasn't like I was a minority, but not really a minority, to actually being the only one in my program or the only one in a department that. I ended up feeling the burden very differently. Yeah, what? Did, how do you think that burden, or do you think that burden influenced the way you approach your scholarly work? Yes. Um, I didn't get interested in looking at issues of race, for example, until um, probably the very end of my undergrad career. And even then, it was only because I took a class in the Harlem Renaissance. But I never really thought of myself as part of that mm-hmm. um, and so there's there's definitely the way that my my interest in literature and I've always been interested was this sort of perhaps false universalism that I was just interested in this these ideas that were untouched by the embodied identities of the people the characters or the authors mm-hmm. which I now realize was sort of was, was false so I'd be interested in abstract ideas like say like the idea of the epic as a genre from Homer to the graphic novel um, do you think there was a particular incident in which you realized race mattered or in the English, in the literature that you were reading? I think it's so many small things, I can't really quite express it. But I think it, I don't even know when I first read my first um, novel by someone who was Asian. Um, I'm trying to think about that. 
uh, or at least, okay, in the context of how I formally learned literature, I don't think I studied any Asian literature until maybe the very last year of my undergrad. And, but um, the only way that I really experienced race in my studies was through the context of African-American literature, sometimes African, uh, Black Canadian literature. That's very interesting. Um, I, I think it's important to rehash what we talked about in the previous um, podcast session about one of the reasons why you do why you started doing English to begin with. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. Um, on the one hand, I love it. On the other hand, it's also an act of defiance to all those. So even though, um, I, as I said, like I grew up not being really a minority because um, there was such a strong Asian population presence in my high school and so forth, mm-hmm. that didn't stop people saying racist stuff. Um, it sort of shows that even if you... Uh, this is a critique of like diversity thought in general. It's not just that you have percentages of diverse bodies in the room and you just let it be and your work is done. Definitely my experience has been that even though I grew up in a very diverse environment and there were a lot of benefits from it, um, it didn't stop a lot of prejudice. And so one thing I did hear a lot in high school, for example, was saying like, you know, go back to Hong Kong, speak English, even though my English... People would say that to you? Yes. Um, Okay. Even though, like, our like again, this is sort of weird resentment, I think, in our high school that the majority of our, say, like, our honor roll was Asian, majority of, like, our band was Asian, mm-hmm. all these other things, even though, like, we probably were 40% of the school population. And so I think that, in retrospect, it would have had to do with a little bit of that resentment. And so that's part of the reason why they yelled those things at us. And Yeah, those are very horrible things to say. Not, not to mention inaccurate, you're not even from... Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. From Canada. And so it's, it ended up having this strange alienating effect that, on the one hand, I felt alienated, but also it also ha- ended up making me feel like, well, I'm not like those other Asians. So I made this sort of false binary between myself and like, oh, mm-hmm. it wasn't that I was being offended on the part of all Asians. It was more like, I'm not like those ones. Because you're westernized. Yeah, which I, and it had taken me a long time to realize how that is, is in itself a problem because I had so internalized what that meant. Mm-hmm. But you did English because you were great at it, yes. and you were better than people who um, phenotypically are people who look like it. You know, they look like they don't, they're not Asian, they look like they're white, um, so they should speak English, and you do it better than they do. Yeah, so this act of defiance, like, well, you tell me to speak English, I'm far better at, at it than you are. Um, I've always been accused of being a walking dictionary, ever since <laughs> being, you know, very little... So it's sort of nice to be, one thing I really like about academia and hanging around awesome people that, that I know is like, we don't have to worry about being misunderstood in that same way, like, mm-hmm. or suddenly having to change your register of what feels natural in your vocabulary so you won't be accused of being, you know, wrong yeah. in some way. Yeah, that I, I, I tell people that grad school is, is what undergrads so it's under it's being an undergrad, but you have a little bit more money, so there's more potential for alcohol or drinking or partying, and that's often not what grad students did in undergrad. They were often we were often studying a lot, and now in grad school, we're not necessarily studying all the time, but we're all over twenty one now, <laughs> and because we're all geeks, we don't realize you know it's an aggregation, and then there's like another level of cool, so you can be cool but not be. You can be geeky and be cool. I guess so, but also, remember from my context in Canada, the dr- legal drinking age is 18. Oh, okay. So, well, it's, the dynamic is definitely different. It's not bragging. like we had to... No, I know. Bragging. It's not like we had to wait <laughs> and, you know, look at us for doing 
we're doing okay. Yeah, I see. So I that was with you even in undergrad, that feeling of I'm going to, the defiance was in undergrad or um, high school or did it start in undergrad? Sorry. Um, started in high school or maybe even before that, probably like there's always a sense of pride in the fact that I read so much and that like my vocabulary and, and so, and my, I guess my literary knowledge exceeded others. So it was mm-hmm. very easy to play to that strength. Um, cause it was a strength that was also a pleasure and then also receiving so much negative feedback having to do with the presumed juxtaposition of my racial identity with the English language and English literature was then something that I decided to play into perversely by being far better at it. Mm-hmm. And so that that's really interesting that you used your academic excellence to be defiant, um, but also move ahead. I'm curious, did your defiance, has it, how has it morphed over the years? So again, at first it's just, I'm doing my classes where you're, you're already doing something that everyone else is doing, but you're doing very well at it. Has it changed anymore? Has it gone outside of the classroom or well, how has it evolved for you? Is it this defiance? I think that's an interesting question. So I was definitely to sort of go back to my earlier point, like I was interested in literature in general. And now I'd say that my work is very interested in politics of a race, gender, sexuality, and mm-hmm. um, all these other um, forms of classification that have been used against people. And so it's evolved insofar as that it's not just about my defiance, it's about thinking about defiance in general. And so I think before my earlier attitude of of clinging to English literature as a sign of my personal superiority was a type of um, the colonization of my own mind because it also had to do with a sort of cultural cachet mm-hmm. of the literary canon, usually like literature before the 20th century, Shakespeare, uh, Dickens, Austin, that sort of stuff. So you're going to master the literature that already existed. Yeah, and that, oftentimes they were not people of color yes, involved yes. in those stories. And like, very rarely women. Whereas now I realize that um, that think, thinking much more, more broadly and more thoughtfully and that literature itself is a sort of tool of power and so that's why I'm so interested in the writings of people of color, especially women of color. Mm-hmm. So I think that on the one hand, like my, my whole focus has shifted to think about resistance and defiance and uh, all these nuances of, of trying to articulate and survive and resist. And how do you do that? How do you engage in academia now? Because the other thing is you're, you're thinking about it differently, but there's this other part where you're not just taking the class and getting the grade anymore. You're also mm-hmm. engaging with people, whether that be social media or presenting um, a present presenting a talk to other scholars or other graduate students. Yeah, I think he's sort of summed it up. Like, there's, I'm aware now, like, I think that um, I have, I'm very lucky to be part of a great community, but it's about, yeah, creating a great community for other um, graduate students of color in my department, uh, making sure that I am a good friend, Mm -hmm. I'm able to offer them some kind of solidarity um, it also means things like trying to uh, bring in speakers that are going to talk about um, writers of color. So, for example, in, in the fall, we're bringing in uh, this amazing professor, Professor Stephanie Lee, to talk about Toni Morrison. She's one of the, like, mm-hmm. the leading uh, academics working on Toni Morrison. So it means both, both fostering, I think, the intellectual atmosphere to support the work of people of color, working on people of color, but at the same time also making sure that those of us 
um, who are in the academy have a safe space. And then also, of course, the, the other dynamic that comes into my teaching, um, where how do, I'm trying to figure out how to, to nourish my students, but also to expose them and have them engage thoughtfully with all these ideas that I wish I had been exposed to much earlier. So, the year is 2040. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, what is, what is your dream? If, if there are no boundaries, if there are no, let's pretend that we all, I don't know, the academic world was way easier to get into and there are no problems. And just what would you be doing right now in 2040 that is? Well, so I'm also one of the Asians who are bad at math, so I know that's in the future. It's a but, long. <laughs> oh, but so can you get, tell me exactly how much in the future is? Because then I have to like actually map it on to where I am. All right. So it's okay. Um, today, the, 20, the 20 years ago. Oh, this 20. Okay. You know what? Let's just say 35 years from now. Okay. That's easier for me to do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, at that point, you know, I'd hopefully have tenure. Well, I'd have to. Um, I would hope to be... Please get a tenured bitch tattoo on your ass. That'd be really great. No. Okay. I have no tattoos. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Um, and then you say, can't touch this. Okay. You, could, you can do I'm that. Sorry. You could, I'm sorry. Don't I'm make me live your bio. dream. Don't make me live your dream. Um, I think that I would really want to be an established um, professor. Um, I mean, what do we all want? Personal and and career fulfillment and that's mm -hmm. what I want and I really hope that I have the opportunity to grow in my career but also grow in a community and that's what I really liked about being in graduate school that I feel like I'm really growing with a community of scholars my colleagues um, faculty and also like through teaching growing with all these students and with my work on our work mm -hmm. on West Campus working with um, more advanced undergraduates and just seeing like if I get so much of, out of that just within my five years at Cornell, how much more will I get out of it when I'm spending decades as part of a particular university environment? And how much more enriching will it be? Like putting down all these roots, mm. watching people grow, like I, that actually excites me. Mm. If there was, we all, we all have tons of cool ideas. Oh, and also I'd have an amazing wardrobe. An amazing, fantastic, wardrobe like if you think my wardrobe is fantastic now and for those of you who don't know me my my wardrobe is quite fantastic mm -hmm. um it's it's awesome in the future i will be i hope to be someone who's absolutely fabulous who remains fabulous. who remains fabulous <laughs> but a different type of fabulous that's really powerful yeah I, I like this but also one thing i like about academia is and i think also what's dangerous about academia is how much it's about your development um, as a scholar, as a thinker. Mm -hmm. And so seeing how much I've managed to, to grow from the beginning of the program to now, or from undergrad to now, um, and just imagine, like, in the 35 years, where will I be? Like, I've seen myself grow so much in this amount of time. Mm -hmm. But in that much more amount of time, where will I be? And that, I think, is really exciting. Yeah. I think so, too. Every time you think you've learned something, there's something else. And, like, part of the fantasy is also, like, Hoping in this fantasy world where the structures of academia are a lot more, are less cruel than they are currently. Like seeing all my friends and seeing how accomplished they'll be. Like mm -hmm. all these people that I know now who are awesome, like when they get, they get their work recognized and we can go into the world and like continue to try and make things better 
Like what, what's that going to look like when we have this new, um, my colleagues as a new generation of rising scholars? That is so optimistic. I'm going to cry. Uh, well, we were also talking, Liz and I were also talking, like, what would it be like if somehow we got hired at the same university? Oh, my God. Oh, that would be amazing. It would be amazing. And yeah. also we have to give some shouts out to some other PhD divas, friends. <laughs> I thought you were going to shout out Nicki Minaj and Beyonce well, for uh, making our anthem already. Yes. I know, well, <laughs> well, there's always an implicit shout out to Nicki Minaj and Beyonce. But to some of our other friends like Nadia Cherniak, who's mm-hmm. in psych, because like, she could fill out the social science components. And mm-hmm. um, our boss and friend, Erica Osterman, mm-hmm. who's in communications, but also wants to continue in higher ed administration. If she were the president and we were yeah. tenured professor in the university, much. I think it'd be that would be a lot of fun. It'd be so much fun. We'd try to really try to make it a better place. First of all, it would be a better place. Because of us. But I, I have to admit, I think it it would be a better place because of all the other scholarly work that we do. But it would be a fun place because mm-hmm. I really do feel like we would do a lot of stuff on campus that would just make people feel safe and join in. and It'd be really cool. Yeah, I'm already thinking of how I'm going to, you know, walk into your classroom and pretend to be a student. Because, you know, black don't crack, so I'll clearly... Oh, come on. Like, <laughs> and so I could do the same to you because they say that Asians don't so age. True. So really, so we could play this both ways. That's Liz. what I'm saying. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah. Oh, it makes me happy. Yeah. So but nice. anyways, that's that's part of the fantasy. That's only talking about career, like personal life. Who even knows? Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't like to think about those things. I mean, uh, clearly, I think about those things. But I also... Um, You're hijacking my ego. I am so hijacking. But you won't... Okay, let me ask you a question. I'm a, and I, I, we all have priorities in life. Mm-hmm. And no matter how hard we try, there are some things that we can't do because we don't have the time. Tell me what's that one cool thing that you would love to do, but you've never really had the time to do. But you really want to do that I really want to do. Yeah. There's things that I'd like, I'm ambivalent about. Like a back burner project or something like, oh, it's be so cool. Ah, maybe Well, this bo- podcast is pretty cool. It can't be something you're already doing. I know, I know. I don't know, maybe having some sort of, I, I guess I'd be interested in expanding, like, my interest in pop culture critique. <laughs> Which is, I guess, is a little bit this too, but, like, all my interest in anime and video games and mm-hmm. other things like that. I guess, I mean, that would be a project, but I think that's, it's very dangerous to talk about the kind of politics that I'm interested in, in those particular spheres of geekdom, and mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not prepared for the type of re- reaction that for that's... Halo? Not, for I'm, Halo Reach to... No, for <laughs> more, like, for certain factions of the geek community to lash out at me. Okay. I'm, I'm not, I'd rather not receive death threats. So you are... You know, I don't think you've ever mentioned it on the podcast, but you're a gamer. I guess so. I mean, I think that my partner would probably dispute that, but... Okay. um, I'm someone who's grown up with video games, has bought several systems, and I think I have a very good working knowledge of the history of video games and current video games. Um, But oddly enough, I'm not the biggest at playing them. I'm very dedicated to playing the Legend of Zelda series, Mm -hmm. um, 
but things like I'm really interested in the genre of horror video games because I think that they do really interesting things with narrative more so narrative and character development more so than other genres but I'm not capable of playing it so I watch a lot of let's plays do you know what let's plays are no what is that let's plays are this genre which I believe um, started in the something awful forums um, but the way that they really become popularized now is that basically if someone plays through a game and they narrate what it what happens <laughs> okay or and the way that you can you can do it very different and so people can also do written let's plays and so you could do like episode by episode let's like play an hour and then recap it but the way that the the youtube uh let's play is really big right now people are making millions of dollars like the top youtube players um have millions of subscribers they make mm -hmm. so much money off of it and so the style is often like comedic but you could also have an informational style like walking having people walk through a game um, explaining the secrets of it, or you could be the type of person that tries to decipher hidden storylines, mm -hmm. or the kind of person that like um, dem like performs your fear in the video games, which is what I particularly enjoy. It's like watching grown men scream in fear. <laughs> it's actually like so. One of the the top um, let's players is this guy called PewDiePie, and that's what he's known for. Mm -hmm. Is that he's this guy who plays horror video games, and he like screams and wails a lot, and he's extremely popular and makes far more money than we do combined. For screaming. Yeah. I yeah. scream, nobody pays me. In, in, in academia, <laughs> no one could hear you scream. No one. <laughs> okay, so you know a lot about games, and I'm going to say you're a gamer, because okay. I'm not a gamer. Okay. And I guess I've also organized talks on games, so I and feel like that gives me some sort of credibility. And I have friends who have designed games in different capacities or been involved in both like very indie um game work and also in AAA studios. Mm -hmm. So, I know you have done some scholarly work on games, and it has now occurred to me, we probably should have done this first, because it's usually how academics describe themselves, but tell me about what your thesis is about. Oh god. <laughs> it's taken this long. Right? <laughs> We've never been like, oh, you know, what are you doing in grad school that, you know, you actually are going to get your degree for, you know? So my field, um, so the way that we describe it in English is usually what is your geographical region and what is your um, temporal field. So I do American literature in the 19th century. And then to narrow it down further on what topics I'm interested in, I'm interested in race, gender, and sexuality in the context of the history of science and the history of law. Mm -hmm. To narrow down the, even further to what my theoretical um, apparatuses are, um, I use queer and feminist theory, um, especially like queer of color theory. Okay. And affect theory. So that was a lot. Okay. It, it is a lot. The problem was like, um, one thing I definitely struggle with because I'm bringing so many things together is that it ends up being like a lot of nouns strung together. Mm -hmm. To try and put it simply. Um, Please do. I need uh, it so much. Oh dear. Um, you know how when we think of literature having power, we think about it having power on feelings. And so the most okay. famous example of this, um, or the most powerful example of, of this in American literature, of course, is Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm -hmm. Because as Lincoln apparently, um, per perhaps apocryphally said when meeting Harriet Beecher Stowe, she was the little woman who started the war. Mm -hmm. And so this is an example of being able to rally feeling um, for enslaved um, black people. But what I want to sort of complicate that is we tend to end up having this narrative and in, in thinking about racial progress in particular and perhaps LGBT progress, for example, that all we need to do is rally good feelings and show that the other person feels. Mm -hmm. 
and that we're trying to battle against those who are unfeeling, like, especially in those times in the 19th century, we think of like unfeeling laws like the Fugitive Slave Act or unfeeling science that was uh, classifying all other races mm -hmm. as being inferior. And what I want to do is really break that down. Say it's not that complicated. Actually, part of my point is, is that feeling was actually part of the racist science and racist law. That's actually what helped to naturalize racist science and law, to make it feel like it was something that was justified for those who were pro-slavery. And so one thing I look at, for example, is like how does, what is the sentimentality, sentimentality uh, of those who justified slavery? And they, it was wildly prevalent that a lot of people justified slavery using feeling sentimentality, saying that they're the ones, the Southerners are the ones who own slavery, are the ones that really love them because they're yeah. part of the family. Yeah. They don't, the Northerners don't care in the same way. Um, or that yeah. the, they're treating them as part of the family. It's this very paternalistic dynamic. Um, it's Right, they were, owners, slave owners were surprised when um, slaves were free and they actually wanted to leave. They didn't understand yes. why slaves would want to leave. They thought this was the best deal ever. They mm -hmm. couldn't understand why they, slaves would ever want to be free. Yeah, so, so that's how I think that the rhetoric of feeling um, and that feeling rights is supposed to give you the right type of politics, but actually feeling is marshaled for both types of part politics. And so to the, the sort of perception that we have is a false binary, that it was never about good feeling, good sentimentality versus these unfeeling structures, mm -hmm. that those structures actually enabled and created other forms of feeling as well that were just as legitimate. And I think that this goes to today, like how does, like say, the language of love, which we want to believe is such a universal thing that helps to undo oppression, also reinscribe oppression. Oh my gosh, this is so this is so important. Yeah. So that's the one side of it. On the one hand side, I want to show um, how does feeling. I feel like rise Cecil the science. Lion is trapped in what you're oh, saying God. right now. But I Not think we could have a podcast, podcast. Yeah. about Cecil the Lion. <sighs> so, like on the one hand, I'm looking at the side that um, how do structures of feeling actually come through science and law, and like particularly. Um, as part of the discipline, but also so, uh, like it's not just that the um, scientists and lawyers, for example, had feelings, but also how those particular disciplines, disciplines um, used the language of sentimentality and so forth, mm -hmm. and that like that was a part actually of what the profession was like. But on the flip side, I want to say it's not just about you know all these oppressed people like trying to clamor to get their humanity recognized by showing their feelings. Sometimes it's also about allowing them to be unfeeling. It's also about um, giving space for them to not just justify themselves within the grammar of sentimentality that, you know, um, I bleed just like you, look at me suffer, mm -hmm. which is often the type of um, exploitation that seems necessary to, to sort of bear your soul to mm -hmm. um, the superior to, in order to get them to recognize your humanity. Instead, I want to look at these moments of um, looking at white women and people of color and women of color where sometimes they resist that narrative. And so what I'm interested in is that there's this way that um, gendered and racialized unfeeling becomes vilified, which is to say that um, when people try, try to reject participating in those narratives of feeling that we're supposed to do to get included, mm -hmm. um, those, um, that act of, of rejecting sentimentality, rejecting that type of discourse, ends up being one that, uh, you, that really threatens the existing order and offends them. So my example in terms white of... White woman tears on Twitter. Yes, white woman tears on Twitter uh, <laughs> um, as the norm. But for example... Hashtag, sorry. Yeah. Hasht, so um, before she continues, um, if you're really interested in it, just look on Twitter and type in hashtag white woman tears and you'll, 
you'll you'll get a sense of what's happening. Yeah. Okay. So my two examples that I'm looking at so far are um, frigidity in women, and the other example. So as an example of like, what does it mean to be emotionally cold and like mm-hmm. sexually cold for a woman? This often accused uh, women who were going to professions as they work recently were in the 19th century, going mm-hmm. against. Um, the separate spheres ideology where it's like they're not going to be really womanly and it's sort of this queerness yeah. that they're, they're not going to have a, a family and like even now I think this is like the rhetoric that we're seeing today like can a woman have it all this is fear like is she giving up love is she giving up family or is she frigid um, so that's the way that that type of unfeeling gets vilified and on the, on, on the racialized side I'm interested in oriental inscrutability you know, how, Go on. Do you know what oriental inscrutability is? No. Really? Um, so it's one of the stereotypes that um, is still levied against Asians that you know, we're not understandable, that we don't have emotions the way that other people do, okay. that we can't be read. And so because of that, we don't have real feelings in the same way. And so, for example, I look at um, how did Senator Miller... I don't know how I yeah. live my life not knowing that. Oh, well, I mean, there's, there's racist stereotypes in America that I didn't know until very okay. recently. Um, Sorry, random question. Would you, would you say this inscrutability is an American... Do you, do you, have you seen this in other places that you have lived or been? I think it is. It's a, it's a general um, way that the East has been perceived as being mysterious okay. and being inaccessible, and it um, becomes a way, I think, of... Uh, so on the one, what sort of interests me, on the one hand, within the structures of white supremacy, for example, in race science, they want to say that... Um, like say the black and brown peoples of the world and like the indigenous people of the world are inferior because of their standard of civilization, the white standard. Mm-hmm. But then when they use that standard, they realize, what do we do with the Asian people, right? Because according to that very standard they're using, um, the Asian people of the world pose a type of threat according to that particular schema. So then the way to distance them is to say, well, they may seem like they're very civilized, but they're actually inscrutable. They don't have emotions like us. So even, mm-hmm. even though they may... And you can see it today, but they have as good test scores, better test score, SAT scores. Yeah. They don't have the same humanity. They don't have the same creativity. They don't have access to yeah. this interiority. So the criteria just shifts. And I think that, again, yeah, part there was of my... an interesting affirmative action study done in California yes. about that, where when it came between, sorry, between whites and blacks, it was, well, their test scores aren't great, so they, they really shouldn't be here. But then where Asians are actually overperforming, whites and test scores, then they're actually more likely to want to emphasize the um, leadership ability and these these other things. Yes. Yeah, so, and I see that um, having a much, much longer history, obviously. So, on the one, so to sort of recap, so I'm interested in the way that, like, um, I think that even though we think of oriental inscrutability as a negative stereotype, as female frigidity as a negative stereotype, Mm. that at the same time, it might have also arisen because it was a strategy on the part of, say, defiance. like... Defiance. Yes, defiance. <laughs> that, for example, that it became a way for the Chinese entering America during the Chinese exclusion era, era to preserve some part of themselves, to, like, reject part of white, the white culture that they're being mm-hmm. forced to assimilate into, that, that is forcing them to expose their feelings to the sort of uh, sentimental logic that you have to perform a certain type of feeling, that sometimes you can deny that. Like, there has to be space for you to, yes, while you do have feelings, not perform it in the way that's expected, to perhaps even deny it. And there, because you are denying it, the access into your emotional interiority, you seem inscrutable. Yeah. And so likewise for, um, I look at, at the example of white women becoming doctors in uh, the late 19th, 19th century, that they were sort of battling against 
um, this accusation that they would be um, taking up the sort of queer frigidity, as I said, because they have to put all their love into the profession and not love into the family. But then the flip side is some women were doing that deliberately because they didn't want to have a family, so it became a convenient excuse to redirect their feeling towards the profession and what they do did love to do as a way to, and a way of avoiding the heteronormative imperatives of family and child and yeah. children and so but then of course they get be accused of being frigid for doing that yeah that, that's i mean clearly this is a lot and there's so many layers to it and it, it feels so real because there's a lot of things in real life that have a lot of layers to them mm-hmm. Um, like onions. Like onions. And they're just as smelly, you know? <laughs> kind of fry them. Yeah. <laughs> so as you can see, like, I'm interested in, like, sort of overturning this narrative of having to do with feeling in relation to unfeeling science and law in both ways. On the one hand, saying that there is feeling here, but also, like, validating how feeling arises out of... Unfeeling can ar- arise as a strategy out of um, women doctors in the profession and... Um, Chinese Americans during the the Chinese Exclusion Act. And I obviously love how that defiance that you seem to have had as a child and an undergrad has made its way into grad school and to um, your thesis and how you're thinking about things. And hopefully you evolved in a way that's more thoughtful and useful than the sort of opposites that I had in the past. Mm -hmm. Whereas contrarian for contrarian sake. That being said, I have to say that I famously have been avoiding Harry Potter I have to bring this up because... Whoa, where do you... Oh, oh that's offensive. We were vibing together and then I know, I know, but for people you. who don't know me, like, I feel like I, I need to warn you now. That's actually important. She doesn't know who Harry Potter is. Well, no, I do. But I feel like I could actually fake that I know Harry Potter. But I know enough about Harry, Harry Potter. Harry Potter fans who are listening, she has no idea. I went to the Harry... Secrets is. I went to she the Harry Potter... But I just do it because even though I'm a big geek, I just refuse to just annoy people. She deserves an internet side eye. And I said, is there anything else you'd like to admit, Harry Potter hater? I mean, guys, before we close. Well, I think this is enough, and hopefully I'll be able to survive to record another episode. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to this episode of Page Divas. Hopefully you know a little bit more about me. Yeah, I, I certainly know more. There are things I didn't know before. And um, we hope you guys try them soon. There'll be more good episodes to come. Bye.